0: You're listening to The Ideal Cast with Gene Kim, brought to you by IT Revolution. In the last episode, I interviewed Admiral John Richardson, who served as Chief of Naval Operations for the US Navy for four years, which is that service's highest ranking officer. He now serves on numerous corporate boards, helping leaders of leaders better serve their customers and win in the marketplace. If you haven't yet listened to that interview, I recommend that you listen to it first because this is a continuation of that first interview. Today, we discuss his views on the importance of training leadership in the earliest stages of a sailor's career and why leadership is so important. Various tools and techniques for enabling radical delegation and why he views that capability being more needed than ever. Some very important characteristics of the different ways that integrated problem solving occurs in organizations One of which is fast, and the other which is slow. The nature of the functional organization that is U.S. Naval Reactors, comprehensively responsible for the safe and reliable operations of the U.S. Navy nuclear propulsion program, and why it warrants being commanded by a four-star admiral. And in complex organizations, when accidents occur, what should leaders do in the ideal? And like in the first interview, I am joined by my mentor, Dr. Steven Spear. Okay, let's start the interview. One of the things that really leapt out at me is your emphasis around leadership development. And you had once told Steve and me a story about the extent that you went to to reinvigorate training, to toughen up the training. You had this incredible story about how that training came about. Right, <laughs> right. Getting away from the post-1940s human conveyor belt mentality and the amazing outcome that resulted from it. Could you tell us that story?
1: Yeah. So, well, it happens really at every level and it's a task that's still in progress, to be honest, Gene. And it was the product of a lot of really smart people who helped us just sort of pick away at this at every level. So the major entry point for the United States Navy is up in Great Lakes at our boot camp right up near Chicago. We process about 40,000 people per year all over the country and, and even the world to come in and, and join the US Navy. They come from every imaginable situation. And so this really is uh, the place where we start the integration. We take you know that vast, disparate, talented cadre of people who have raised their right hand and committed to joining the Navy. And now we begin the process. So this was motivated by me walking around and talking to junior sailors and them saying, hey, you know, that was a lot easier. That boot camp was a lot easier than I thought. And uh, (laughs) I was like, what? And it was fairly consistent. And you take that observation against the background that we were really trying to make the Navy a a little bit more capable, a little more tougher, right? We made it a a toughness and one of the core attributes of the Navy and so I thought, well these two things are just uh, <laughs> that's a contrast I'm not sure I'm comfortable with. So we started to take a look at how we might increase the value really of boot camp and a lot of that would be to honestly to make it harder, right to, to make it tougher on the recruits. And so just from about every dimension, but intellectually, physically, from a team building standpoint, we improved the curriculum and we did make it harder, right? The, the physical standards became more challenging. We really went back to fundamentals of uh, watch standing so that we could, no kidding, graduate a sailor who, upon arrival in their crew, was ready to contribute, right? And so, with so, with some fundamentals uh, for sure, and there's a lot of of education still to go, but uh, we wanted to to do that. So we actually started backing it up even before they arrived at boot camp. So typically, uh, you know, somebody with some period of time before period of time before they actually report to boot camp, just logistics, et cetera. And we backed the training up into that time before they reported, right? So particularly in the physical, hey, let's get together and work out, right? And all of that stuff. So we cranked it up. The other thing that we did, though, and this was where, you know, the thoughtfulness of the team really was just astounding, was that we also developed some mechanisms, maybe call them coping mechanisms for each of the recruits to manage that increased level of difficulty kind of sounds like a a bad joke sometimes, the beginning (laughs) of a bad joke, but it was a SEAL cognitive psychologist and a chaplain who got together and put together these coping mechanisms. And it was astounding the things that they really taught these young recruits in terms of the ability to manage their way through and help their shipmates through difficult situations. And so just as a a visual example you know one of the very first things that uh, recruits have to do is you know get comfortable with the water obviously and they have this platform dive that they have to jump off of a pretty elevated platform into a pool and, you know that could be a scary thing right some of the recruits just don't uh, have any experience in that regard and if you've ever done that it can be a little bit of a fearful thing so, uh, you can literally see these young recruits go up there and, and they start to, this is like I said, very early on, they start to hesitate. And either their instructor or their fellow recruit would just use a code word, you know, I think it was calibrate or something like that. And they would start these techniques to just sort of center their mind, you know, do some breathing or whatever. And then then they'd step right off. It was just remarkable. And everything would be fine. And, you know, everybody would cheer. It was very self-reinforcing. And and so uh, and, and you know, so you, you just start with that. And so I think, you know, the point being that yes, we had to make boot camp more more challenging so that the graduates, the sailors that graduated would be more relevant and, and contribute more to the Navy upon graduation, making itself tougher. But also it was insufficient just to do that. We had to give them some tools for them to get through this. So some of the great stories of that were that the instructors and the sailors also started to use these tools in other parts of their lives, right? So we would have people say, "Yeah, I actually at home, you know, with in my marriage, <laughs> I am uh, able to use these tools to just sort of get through difficult times with my spouse or whatever it might be." And so we really thought that we were onto something there. Uh, i think write an article or something about this these are very about this these are very sort of boutique tools and so if you go to high performing teams you can find these sorts of mechanisms at play but typically those teams are pretty small right and we're doing it at scale you know forty thousand people a year able to use these tools and get through this indoctrination period and so we really felt that we were on to something the key actually gene was getting the instructors on board right mm. you know they've got to be real believers of these techniques which in many cases were new to them right i mean you know, the, the the previous approach was just sort of yell louder right and so uh, <laughs> and, and so we really took a different approach to that and it was interesting that when we first started it, we went into this doing a number of pilot programs and those sorts of things, refining it, and then finally you know, doing all of boot camp. And, and we're actually in the middle of kind of spreading it around the Navy where it can be applied. You've got to go slowly and thoughtfully because of the training involved with the instructors. And early on, we were taking a look at different pilot programs and, and experimental phase. And we found that you know, one of the uh, teams up at boot camp just weren't getting it. They weren't performing the same, et cetera. And so we dug into that and we found it was because the instructors really had not fully adopted the approach, right? So you really got to be a believer uh, when you do this. Now, of course, when we cranked up the uh, level of difficulty, a lot of people kept telling us, hey, this is going to be a disaster, right? This generation, it just isn't going to be able to handle it. You're going to see everybody leave boot camp and, and drop out. And in fact, we saw exactly the opposite, right? Our graduation rate went up. Uh, we were you know, Our attrition went down. And even kind of the day-to-day, you know, hey, I don't feel so well today, so I'm going to, you know, call in and, and, and call in sick. All of that went down, right? So we really felt like we had captured something special uh, by virtue of these techniques because it just became... Uh, so much more effective across the board. People seem to be really aligning with it. I mean, the Navy is about as, as talented as it ever has been by every measure right now, You know, grades and, and fitness, et cetera. And these young people can graduate from school, high school, college, whatever it might be, and write their check anywhere in the world, right? I mean, they, they really are that good. A lot of competition for that talent, and yet they chose the Navy. Right. And so we didn't want to shy away from that. Right. We wanted to give them the challenge that they signed up for. And they really
0: leaned into that and uh, made everybody proud. Uh, And you had this great story about the new sailors, their role in a firefighting scenario before and after. Yeah. I don't know about before,
1: but we wanted to get some feedback from the fleet, right? The graduates, how, how were they doing? Was this really achieving the aims that we had set about? And, um, it's a little bit anecdotal. In general, we, we got very positive feedback, but there was this one story that really made me smile, which was the story of a chief petty officer at sea kind of talking to somebody back in the recruiting command saying, uh, hey, what are you guys doing back there? And it's, uh, well, why do you ask? Well, we just had a brand new recruit, and she shows up on the ship, and you know, typically we put them in kind of a learning phase and uh, we don't expect much of them. But just the other day, we did a fire drill, and I was watching this uh, damage control locker to you know just monitor performance. And this young sailor came up, and she opened the damage control locker. She just went to town. She just you know broke out the hose, flaked it out, charged it, grabbed the and started you know doing exactly what a seasoned firefighter might do. And so, you know, basically the feedback was that I've never seen that level of proficiency on arrival before. So whatever you're doing out there, keep doing it. (laughs) And so it was really uh, (laughs) a a nice bit of feedback there.
0: And I can imagine maybe before you had those success stories, some of the reactions you would get from the instructors would be, holy cow, the CNOs trying to be awfully nice. Nice (laughs) meaning maybe opposite of effective or tough. Could you tell us maybe what that? Discussion might have sounded like to yeah. refute <laughs> that. That's not about being nice,
1: right? Well, it was. It was really kind of a complex discussion, Gene, because first there was the discussion about uh, toughness. Right? Is toughness the right attribute? And uh, a, a really, I really, I think Steve, you might have been there for some of those sessions, uh, just joining us there yeah. for the uh, leaders' meetings, etc. But they would say, well, you know, we're really after resilient or hey, toughness. You know, we don't want to make it tough on ourselves, right? We want to train recruits to be more capable, but you know, we certainly don't want any kind of uh, abuse of any kind going on, hazing or anything like that, right? So we're very mindful to protect against that. And so people were, I think, thoughtful about, you know, is that the right word? And at the end, we sort of stuck with it, right? And w- with all of the attention that it deserved. So that was the first part of the discussion is, uh, hey, is toughness really what we're after? And, uh, and so then it was, uh, okay, so how do we go about building it? Okay, raising the standards, yeah, everybody understood that, right? So instead of, you know, 10 pull-ups, well, something as simple as that okay, so you know how do you get there? Mental techniques were a, a little bit of a new approach, right So now that's where it's like well, wait a second, you know uh, yeah <laughs> I mean, why can't I just <laughs> yell more right? We really wanted to build teammates who were ready to take on challenges that it, it can be quite scary right quite very challenging and so how do we how do we build them up and it was, it was really that combination i mean you know us navy seals pretty tough crowd so no doubt about that the psychologist just did a tremendous amount uh, to to add to that and then of course you know the chaplain is monitoring and bringing all of that to bear so it was the balance of those you know kind of body mind and spirit right that created a mm. uh, set of techniques that again the proof was in the pudding there was a lot of skepticism Eventually, we got the instructors to say, "Okay, well, we'll give this a try." The feedback ended up being positive, and so it just kind of built on itself.
2: Quick reflections. One was a meeting of senior leadership. It's the flag officers and their civilian counterparts, and CNO had thrown out the idea of resilience as a characteristic to develop. Sort of from an engineering perspective, it's the right term, but uh, people didn't like it. It wasn't macho enough, so I think that's where the toughness, if I remember, that's where that one came in.:
0: Keen here. I had mentioned in part one of this interview how much I admired the two documents that Admiral Richardson mentioned and had shared with me. One had the title of Designing for Maritime Superiority, and the other was the Navy Leadership Development Framework. I loved both documents because they were both so clearly written. And it was such a treat listening to Admiral Richardson and Dr. Spear talk about some of the early meetings as they were establishing some of these important concepts that went into those documents. In version 1.0 of Designing for Maritime Superiority, that attribute of toughness is one of four attributes described. As I described last time, the document starts off with mission, the strategic environment, or problem statements. The next section is core attributes. Then he describes the four lines of effort, which I read last time. And the document ends with desired outcomes and conclusion. So toughness is one of those four core attributes. The first is integrity. Our behaviors as individuals and as an organization align with our values as a profession. We actively strengthen each other's resolve to act consistently with our values. As individuals, as teams, and as a Navy, our conduct must always be upright and honorable, both in public and when nobody's looking. The second is accountability. We are a mission-oriented force. We achieve and maintain high standards. Our actions support our strategy. We clearly define the problem we're trying to solve and the proposed outcomes. In execution, we honestly assess our progress and adjust as required. We are our own toughest critic. On their own, everybody strives to be the best they can be. We give 100% when on the job. Our leaders take ownership and act to the limit of their authorities. (laughs) I love that. We foster a questioning attitude and look at new ideas with an open mind. Our most junior teammate may have the best idea. We must be open to capturing that idea. And fourth is toughness. We can take a hit and keep going, tapping all sources of strength and resilience, rigorous training for operations and combat, the fighting spirit of our people and the steadfast support of our families. We don't give up the ship. I want to share three observations. One, after thinking about this document for weeks, I find it super interesting to look at its structure. The way most strategic documents seem to be written is you have kind of high-level vision and mission, and then the objectives and key results. But contrast that to this document. First, it's mission and the strategic environment or the problem, and then they zoom down to core attributes and then back up to the four lines of efforts or objectives. Isn't it interesting that the core attributes is between the problem and the solution, I think it's because this further underscores the need for radical delegation. In fact, they clearly state they want, quote, leaders to take ownership and act to the limits of their authorities, end quote. Until this document, I don't think I've ever seen that done like this before. Two, I was curious about how much effort obviously went into this document, so I asked Admiral Richardson over an email whether he used writing as a means to clarify his own thinking. And he did indeed confirm that it is the case. He wrote about how important it is to write words down, as opposed to just writing PowerPoint slides. And his next step in the writing process is to keep reducing the size of the document to reduce the likelihood of misinterpretation. Which leads to my third observation. All this reminds me of one of the famous practices of Jeff Bezos, founder and CEO of Amazon, which has been written about considerably. Okay, back to the interview.
2: Gene, this is an aside and less Navy related, but this idea of thinking through all work as a process, which has an intended outcome, an intended deliverable, all processes exist to generate an output. And that output has to be delivered to somebody. And that's true, not just for manufactured product, but anything, you know, you have someone come into a class, the whole reason for that should be that you're preparing them for their next step in life. And we've seen it actually very rare that people in responsible for educational developmental processes, think about the next place the person will end up and designing for that next place. So not surprisingly, the exception to the rule is Toyota, which I spent a lot of time documenting in my book, I think chapter six, about working backwards from when the moment that person steps on the line, are they ready? And so that story about the young recruit coming out and she's just ready for the fire party, you know, that would have been a very Toyota story and pretty much nowhere else. In contrast, we did a study of how medical students go through their process, and it's without any context at all as to what's coming up next. (laughs) And so the predictable consequence of the first approach is it probably takes less time to get much more skill into people, and they're much better ready for whatever's next. And the predictable consequence of the typical approach is it takes a, a lot of time, a lot of money, and people arrive wherever they're next, and they're frustrated they're not ready to get going, and the people who are now responsible for them are now frustrated with the amount of babysitting required. So anyway, the, the story about re- reformatting the basic training resonated very strongly. I guess
1: the uh, the framework in which we were thinking about that was just to view view the, the Navy as, in many ways, a leadership factory, right? And so we really are, even as we bring... People in, and we begin this sailorization process, is what we talked, called it there at uh, Great Lakes. And, and at all of the entry points, we really are thinking about creating these leaders. And as soon as they arrive at their first command, our sailors are, they no sooner learn their way to their own bunk on the ship, you know, in a, a very short amount of time, they're being put in charge of some small team, right? They're, they're going to be leading. Before they know it, I think all the services just provide a, a tremendous amount of responsibility pretty early on in a career, and boy, we have to start preparing for that pretty early, right? So beginning at boot camp,
0: to be honest. How important is that that these young sailors are being put in leadership roles immediately? <laughs> Why is that important? Well, I think it's important
1: because you're going to want to build a team that is as adaptable and responsive to fleeting opportunities and stimulus as quickly as possible, right? And and even on something that is as contained as a ship, you're going to have different things happening in different parts of that ship and you're going to want somebody to be able to kind of take charge of that situation and lead their way through it, whether it's uh, an opportunity to excel or whether it's some kind of a, a damage control scenario where you've got to fight a failure or a fire or some you know emergency and so yeah i mean i think that the navy does just about everything that we do in teams and we need people to lead those teams and it scales down you know pretty quickly uh we have teams of all sorts administrative teams divisions departments those sorts of things we have watch teams which are kind of operational teams
2: and there's just a, a tremendous amount of leadership opportunity we met when you invited me to a prospective uh, commodore's course down in um, at the submarine yeah, command
1: Norfolk. Yeah,
2: yep. The reason I hook on that is the impression that after basic training, every time someone takes on a new role, whether it's uh, a rank or whatever else, that there is a a formal training built in on how to be the person in that role. One, I just want to confirm that's true. The other part, you know, and again with this idea of the prospective commodore is that someone should show up for their next command, ready to command, not learning on the job. So, if that's true, why was that not true for the the entry level sailor that they arrive, you know, ready to stand their first watch?
1: Oh well, it's easy, I think, uh, to your point, your earlier discussion that hey, what is the actual purpose? What what is the output that we're looking for? of this organization, right? And um, one thing about schools, right? Uh, training training uh, departments or whatever, is that I think uh, organizational leaders le- need to visit those places often, right? To make sure that they stay aligned with the aims of the organization and that the uh, graduates from that school are actually serving the purpose that the school was stood up to, uh, to meet. Uh, because it's easy to drift off right they become uh, I mean they're a little bit of a uh, an organization under themselves and so unless you just sort of visit them make sure that they stay in the mainstream or the main current and they don't form a kind of an eddy pool off on their own we just saw a lot of examples of that right where the school was I mean it was functioning as a school they were doing a lot of teaching and everything but the graduate, wasn't exactly uh, aligned with what we needed that school to produce, which which is you know team members, watchstanders, right? You got to go and graduate and be ready to be part of a crew, and uh, so if you don't kind of keep that front and center, it's easy to do a lot of uh, really you know a, a good education, et cetera, but you just don't graduate a person that's uh, meeting the expectations of the fleet, right? And so there's that. That dialogue between the school and what it produces, and the fleet, who's going to uh, you know assimilate that graduate, and really wants to have that person do uh, be as productive as possible on arrival, so that, that you don't extend that education uh, responsibility into the operational force. Right? They're going to do plenty of that anyway. But uh, hey, boot camp's kind of set up to do what it's supposed to do, and I don't want that kind of bleeding over into the fleet, right? So, uh, managing those expectations between graduate and uh, recipient, if you will, I think are uh, is really important. The other thing about this, and and it's it's uh, it's pretty accurate what you say, Steve, is that there's some education for just about every step forward in a in a sailor's career. But um, you know, I'll just speak. Many of those steps are just, are just uh, I would call them, you know, linear uh, scaling of the last job you had, right? So, you know, we you become a division officer, you're in charge of uh, let's say you know 15 sailors. That's your division, and uh, you know, the next thing you do is uh, you get promoted. You come back as a department head and you're in charge of a bigger group of sailors, right? So that's just uh, kind of a linear uh, 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 expansion of your previous job. But there are some jobs where it is nonlinear. The, the difference between your last job and the one you're about to take is really nonlinear. And uh, it, there are very few of those, as, we, as I thought about it in the Navy. One is, you know, when you first enter the Navy, you, you, be, you change from a student to a, a leader right? And, uh, yeah, that is different in nature. And if you think about your entire life as a student, it's all, you know, your grades, your, your performance, et cetera, you're being graded, you, you need to graduate. It's, you know, your, your, uh, your success is really uh, based on your, your individual performance. Uh, you know, now you're a leader and to a great degree, uh, even as a junior leader, your success is based on the success of your team. Right. So you've got to invest a lot of your energy uh, putting your team first, right, and uh, making sure that they're performing. And that, you know, that's new. That's different in nature. And that, the next nonlinear step, I think, in the Navy anyway, is uh, you move forward and uh, you take different levels of responsibility in the organization until you get to command. And command is different in nature than anything that has come before it, right? And so, You know the idea that hey, you know, well, first, you know, the regulations have different uh, words to talk about command in terms of the extent of the authority and accountability and responsibility that you have. Uh, You know, I remember my first uh, time getting underway on a submarine uh, in command, and there really there's nobody to look over your shoulder (laughs) and ask, you know, what do I do next? It's really kind of on you to get that right. And so, uh, and and the other thing is, when things go wrong, you're standing there, and every eye turns to you, like, "Hey, what are we going to do now?" That's different in nature than uh, anything that you've done before. And then, Steve, what you witnessed was uh, a prospective Commodore course, which is also a nonlinear jump because now, you know, a Commodore is going to be the commander of commanders, right? So uh, that's different than just. You know, commanding one team, you have to figure out. You know, now how do I bring these commanders along, giving them the opportunity to enjoy command, just as uh, just as uh, you did as a as a commander, trying not to be like the super commanding officer of the entire squadron, and and, and training these commander commanding officers to be better. Uh, that's that's a uh, different in nature. And then you know, you you get into. Uh, really the flag ranks before it changes in nature again. So uh, yeah, that's a very important school, that prospective commander school, because you have to teach people to think a little bit different than they have uh, because this Commodore job commanding other commanders is different than anything they've
0: done before. So neat. I want to tell the story that Steve told me that has consumed, you know, for me, uh, my mental space for about six months seven months and i'd love to see what reaction you have out of it so the the story was about a trip that uh, steve made with his mentor dr kent bowen to visit a toyota plant in the 1990s and there was a vp of manufacturing from a big three automotive manufacturer there and among the many things that they were shown was the fact that in this toyota plant they're doing 60 line side store changes per day the uh, line side store being where the inputs for our work center are stored. And so the VP of manufacturing reacted with a incredulity or maybe even disbelief saying, you know, that's crap. Because I think it was because it was so preposterous. (laughs) And he said, we did six line-side store changes in one day and it shut the entire plant down for three days. And so certain parts wouldn't get to where they need to be. Final assembly couldn't happen. So no cars come out for three days. And so... The story that evoked for me, the memory was in 2009. John Allspaw, the VP of Operations at Flickr, and his counterpart Paul Hammond in Engineering and Development said, uh, "We're doing 10 deploys a day every day." This is in 2009, <laughs> and I think the whole technology community just you know threw up in the aisles, right? Just like you know, we do 10 deploys in a year, right? And we can barely handle that. What sort of maniac would do 10 deploys in a given day when they don't need to? <laughs> and so. I think the big aha moment for me was that in both scenarios, they were able to reduce the cost of change so that each small change could be done you know, easily, uh, seamlessly, safely, securely without causing widespread chaos and disruption. And so much of that is in the manufacturing world is enabled by these Kanban cards where an envelope with a to and a from and what parts you need, you can change the routings, but no one really needs to know except for (laughs) the people in the loading docks and where the parts need to go. And so that sort of decoupled and enabled the decentralization of the changes so they could be made more safely. I think what's in common between the Toyota story and the technology story is that you're trying to enable these teams to work independently and quickly without causing chaos and disruption. So in that manufacturing example, each work center was able to do improvements, mostly independently, without having to let the central production control group know, right? And what happened in the American automotive plant was that that central MRP system or something, if you missed the detail, suddenly everything came collapsing down. Lieutenant Commander Dave Silverman and the team of teams, the story he was talking about uh, how, you know, when they tried to push the operational tempo without decentralizing the planning and execution process. When they tried to go twice as fast, it ended up with higher numbers of accidents, injuries, and civilian casualties. So it seems like there's a structure where you couple things together and the cost of change is unacceptably high. Uh, That small changes can have bad outcomes in a distant part of the system, (laughs) or maybe even globally. And there are some structures that allow... Rapid innovation and changes at a more local level. Can you react to that and maybe talk about you know some structures that come to mind that you know are very brittle in that way versus yeah. ones that allow more independence?
1: Yeah, it's it's very interrelated with technology. So one dynamic that I think is fundamental to successful naval operations, a, a successful navy decentralizes. As much as possible, right? Before it was necessary, this decentralization was unavoidable because you, you would get a ship and its crew, and it would leave port and it would go over the horizon, and there was there was no way to reach it, right? No, and so whatever you told that crew, your captain and their crew before they left, they, they were on their own after that, right? They just had to uh, respond, and so and the better crews, of course, were uh, more creative, more independent, more responsive to these fleeting opportunities and came back having contributed a great deal to the central mission, if you will, right? So there's this kind of radical delegation that we talked about in our first interview. And there's a real art uh, uh, to crafting commander's guidance to give that commanding officer to say, hey, you know, this is what uh, we really need you to do. I'm not gonna be able to talk to you for some time. So go off and do good. Here's what I define as good. And, uh, and, and I'd really be grateful if you didn't do this stuff because this is how <laughs> I define <it> as bad. <laughs> um, and uh, so that, uh, that builds into the DNA of the organization this ability to, uh, this decentralized uh, approach, right? Even in the uh, cause of the greater good, if you will, right? Um, now, of course, it's a different scenario, right? Uh, through technology, uh, you do have the ability to communicate uh, a lot more, <laughs> and uh, and so I think it's incumbent on the uh, senior commanders now to just exercise some appetite suppression to reach <laughs> down in and you know want to just get constant updates or whatever it might be, which can hamstring you know that uh, that individual command from from being as responsive and uh agile and innovative as as we need them to be you know particularly as you said as the tempo and intensity go up you know that communications channel is going to degrade i think it's not a, a mystery that 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 uh command and control network will be one of the first targets right so that you can uh you, you can just degrade that, that ability to communicate. And so we really need to continue to train our commanders to be, you know, very innovative, very creative, uh, in the uh, accomplishment of the mission. And, uh, th- but there's that tension now with the, uh, the, uh, information technology ability to kind of stay in constant, you know, video contact almost, uh, no matter where they are in the world. And so, it's a, it's an interesting challenge for the Navy uh, as we think about training commanders, but even as we think about training, you know, major commanders who will command, you know, the senior commanders to allow uh, the, everybody to, to reach their maximum creative potential, right, to stay as decentralized as possible. But, yeah, so it's interesting. And then if you get down to the ship level, I'm I, I kind of really... Oh, no, this is great! <laughs> I'm talkative today. I don't <laughs> know why. Um, uh, you know, there's uh, there's some things that can be decentralized, but what one of the things that's really great uh, also about service in the Navy is that you do have this idea of a crew, right? And boy, that ship—you know, what happens to one happens to all, right? And so they do have to come together and integrate at that level. Just because it's essential to mission accomplishment and, and also survival, and so uh, it, it's like it's like an organism gene. You got to have a head, but you also have to have arms and legs and a body and, and hands and everything else. So,
0: I hope you're enjoying this conversation as much as I am. I absolutely love. Admiral John Richardson's view of leadership, and it's been amazing to see how frequently his work has been studied and referenced within the technology community inside the US Department of Defense. We are well underway in creating our 2021 Virtual DevOps Enterprise Summit Europe event, with the goal of making it our best programming ever. One of the announced speakers is Dr. Ron Westrom, whose work is so familiar to so many of us within the DevOps Enterprise community. This virtual conference will be held on May 18th to the 20th, Go to events.itrevolution.com slash virtual and use the code IDEALCAST to get $150 off your registration. And you may have noticed that the DevOps Enterprise Video Library has been loaded with new content. Behind the scenes, we've been working to add all the talks from all our previous conferences. This is nearly a thousand talks dating all the way back to 2014. We're publishing them in batches, so check back in weekly to see what's new. To test it out, try searching for Dr. Andre Martin. His incredibly popular session from Las Vegas 2019 hasn't been released to the public until now. Go to videolibrary.doesvirtual.com to access it. I'm wondering if you can sort of paint a spectrum for me. So maybe if you were to take a look at a, whether it's a task force or something, some assembly of, of forces, can you paint kind of like a configuration where you would look at and say, oh, uh, that's just doomed from the beginning, right? Just By looking at the communication paths or the way decisions are made versus one where you would look at and your reaction would be like, ah, they are set up for you know success.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would take a look at how they disseminate their orders, if you will, and then how those orders are are then accomplished, right? So I would say that on the over-controlled kind of micromanaging end of the spectrum, you would have a situation where not a lot of discussion up front about you know, why we are doing things the way we're doing, a deep discussion about what we're trying to accomplish. Instead, it would just be sort of a a rapid-fire series of uh, do this, <laughs> right? And then, uh, you know, accompanying that would be little to no feedback from the subordinate commanders about, okay, this is how it went or something. It would just be kind of a one-way staccato of uh, direction. And at the other end of the spectrum, there would be a tremendous amount of what we call commanded feedback, right? So spend a lot of time talking amongst commanders about, hey, this is the aim of the mission. This is what we're about. These are the assumptions that we're going into uh, this with, but it's dynamic. And uh, yeah, we're not an academic institution, so we spent a fair amount of time assessing this, but we are where we are, and it's time to move out. And so we, it might not be exactly as we describe it. If it's not, I need to hear from you, right? And so feed that back, and here's your commander's guidance, and let's go out and execute and beyond that, I'm just not going to give you much more direction. You've got everything you need to go off and command. And somewhere in the middle, it would be you know kind of things like control by negation. Hey, do something, but I just you know let me know what you're doing and give me three Mississippi to say, hey, don't do that if I have an objection. And I think also it depends on the level of trust and confidence that you have. So there's not one answer that fits all. I would I, personally, I just stay away from. The, the staccato one-way burst of orders, I just think that is uh, that is an unresponsive uh, system that's perhaps doomed to failure in a complex environment. On the other end of the spectrum, boy, it takes a lot of trust and confidence. You have to know each other very well. And so, you know, teammates that have served together a long time, uh, you know, you mentioned team of teams and the special forces, they put a lot of value on that, right? Because uh, they're going to be doing some you know pretty high end operations in a decentralized way so they like to work with people that they have a lot of experience with and can trust mm. in the middle you know you're getting new commanders all the time right and so you you want to start to train them to be that highly trusted highly innovative agile commander think on their own be successful but you know you're also mindful that they're brand new at this and so this kind of command and feedback or but control by negation is a nice way to Make sure that it's their idea, right? And as long as things are going well, they're going to go well, right? You just let them go. But it also gives you an opportunity to do some training or adjustment
0: if you need there. So, just to maybe go into sort of tools and techniques. I mean, it seems like one of the big challenges to overcome is I think Steve in the last interview mentioned the notion of guardrails. How do you avoid the conditions where uh, an immediate situation needs to be deconflicted? <laughs> I'm just trying to think about like what are the tools that enable to sort of this opposite of You know, one person doing all the thinking and dispatching all the orders (laughs) in one way. Yeah. Uh, Things that come to mind are from reading a lot of Tom Clancy books, I guess. (laughs) Right. Uh, I I guess the the US Navy has come up with some very novel ways to sort of avoid that need for communication, like uh, identifying um, some areas of sea that only one submarine (laughs) is allowed to be in. Or what are those sort of other uh, tools that allow for this? absence of you know one node continually telling what every other node what to do
1: right so so that's one way is you just sort of parse things out and you know, the Navy is moving to a uh, concept of operation that is more and more like that for every you know, type of uh, fighting element if you will And so it's very distributed right because uh, hey, the technology is just to the point where you know if you're if you're massing forces together, that's a much more detectable type of an event and the ability to reach out at long range and precision and you know target that is uh, just increasing so you want to make that targeting problem much much harder for your enemy so you distribute right but you still often have to you know coordinate effects whether that's you know getting that distributed force now to operate in uh, synchronicity. So, so you know, these ideas where you're going to distribute geographically, distribute amongst uh, domains, so air, sea, undersea, space, land, you know, they all have to, to coordinate and synchronize together. So some of that's going to be geographic, some of that's going to be functional, uh, but, you know, it's, it's getting to the point, Gene, where this ability to really outstrip our adversaries and capability comes down to almost you know nanosecond timing, and so you've got to have kind of a clock that is uh, moving everybody forward. But it goes to this guardrail because uh, you just can't anticipate. You know that they've got that uh, that phrase. You know, no no plan survives contact with the enemy, and so you, even within that, when things go Wrong, or they're unexpected, or this particular signal was just missing. It's been disrupted. You know, by virtue of that, that really melding of the minds before execution. I think that's what uh, helps define the guardrails, right? So, hey, this is your mission. You know, here's here's the entire landscape of risk that is you know yours now, right? And so, it's a big landscape. Right, it's a it's a it's a big part of the mission, but it's not everything. And so there will be areas where, hey, if you go outside that, we're we're actually going to start to conflict internally. The worst thing being some kind of a blue on blue type of engagement where we're shooting at ourselves or something like that. And so uh, there will be, you know, some guardrails or boundaries that, hey, inside that. Exercise all the creativity you can. And uh, here's the tempo and the synchronous plan. Uh, We're going to move together. But if you lose that signal, right, uh, hey, try and contact me, get back. And if you're completely isolated for a while, while you're isolated, here's the commander's guidance that you can continue to operate within those boundaries and still move the mission forward.
0: You know, uh, when you were uh, describing what kind of good and effective and maybe not so effective looked like, I evoked in my mind this Phrase I heard a mentor of mine say. She said, "You can measure the intelligence of an organization based on the frequency and intensity of communications between kind of the nodes and the structure, right? Is it, in one case you have sort of one central node sort of broadcasting out one-way orders, <laughs> right? right? Nothing coming back versus you know a lot of you know intense communication at the edges with the edges." So the question is going to be about integration. It seems like a theme in the military for centuries has been pushing that point of integration further and further down the command structure. Uh, As opposed to just at the highest levels of command. And it seems like you you were just suggesting there that in a certain theater of operations, uh, there's going to be a tremendous amount of integration happening at the edges, whether it's uh, air, sea, undersea, so forth. Can can you talk a little bit about that? Why it's so necessary for integration to be happening further and further away from just the very tops of the organizations?
1: Yeah, I'll be happy to. uh... Just one quick thing, you know, even uh, as I think about it more, there, there is a role, I think, for the sort of one way, uh, giving of an order, which would be maybe in extremis, right? Where you have an emergency and it's sort of, okay, you know, I see this clearly, we need to turn left now right. or we're going to have a collision, you know, that would be, uh, so, so you really do have, uh, those cases where even that type of uh, leadership is appropriate, <laughs> but I, I think that uh, you know you'd want to you'd want to minimize those. So why why integration uh, further and further out from the center, if you will? That's really kind of where the uh, action is happening right now. And there's this whole concept of jointness, right? Which I'm sure you've heard of. Which is, you know, at its most simple is you know, the army and the Navy and the air force and space and everything is all going to operate in, in harmony. And, uh, but really what's, you know, what's happening though, is it's, it's becoming, uh, I think just, you know, too complicated to over-centralize this, right? You've got to have that coordination at the edge because uh, the complexity and tempo are such that to try and say, okay, I see this, you know, back to headquarters. Uh, what do you want me to do? <laughs> Head, headquarters only has a you know an incomplete, at best, understanding of what you're actually seeing, the full context of it. But they're going to say, "Well, do this," and you know that may or may not make sense given uh, what you're seeing now. You know, because the time has passed. So it really, you know, the the tempo of it all and the the uh, dispersion of it all really. Yeah. Both geographically, uh, functionally, uh, technologically, it's just happening at a pace that, uh, if you kind of go back and, and centralize everything, you're going to fall uh, more and more behind. This is not a choice, yeah. right? If you're going to succeed. The other thing, and Steve, and I, we talk a lot about football. Uh, you know, uh, what uh, we find is it kind of goes all the way back to boot camp because the ability to operate. Uh, effectively, at that pace, out at the edges, uh, it really uh, mandates a command of the fundamentals in a in a way that's much more uh, complete than uh, you know before. Whereas when you are centralized, you could maybe absorb some some inefficiencies or uh, you know some parts of the place which, which were ineffective. Uh, but in this distributed uh, scheme. You know, everybody's got to have a, a, an unbelievable command of the fundamentals. You know, to, to use the football analogy, that's you know, you're not going to move into your two-minute offense and uh, you know, no huddle offense <laughs> and be able to do that effectively if you don't have the fundamentals of controlling the line of scrimmage down. You know, just down pat, right? So you really have to spend, uh, ironically, more time on the fundamentals because they're going to be the building blocks for creativity uh, when you when you decentralize
0: and move everything out to the edge. One quick question before we go to Steve, one of the terms I picked up from your last interview was this notion of uh, radical delegation. I mean is there a, a, an overlap between the kind of this desire for radical delegation and what you're just talking about, the sort of need to keep pushing integration you know further from the center? I think that, that they're one and the same,
1: right? I mean what you're doing is you're moving more and more responsibility, if you will out to the edge, right to uh, achieve uh, mission success. Where the the trust and confidence uh, in in that commander out at the edge come in is that, you know, as the central commander, you, you can't ever escape responsibility and accountability for the whole mission, right? Mm-hmm. So you've really, you know, you've really got to have a lot of confidence in that commander to achieve it because it all starts to, uh, you know, kind of blend together uh, pretty completely. You can't delegate that responsibility. So just to maybe go back and correct what I said, uh, you're, you're not going to radically delegate responsibility because that's just kind of something that can't be delegated. But you are going to delegate a lot of the mission success, right? A lot of the
0: authority. Gene here. Steve is going to start talking about the dynamics that result when you centralize and decentralize authority, and he's going to start referring to pictures that you won't be able to see because he drew them while Admiral Richardson and I were talking and used them to explain something that I think is super interesting and important. I will explain it all in about five minutes, so hang in there. Those diagrams were a huge aha moment for me because they point out some startling common characteristics of the great dynamics that we heard from Dave Silverman from team of teams, how engineers work together in DevOps and within the Toyota production system. And it also points out what goes so badly wrong when we require integrated problem solving from a vast number of specialties when they're not allowed to talk to each other directly. Okay. Here's Steve and I'll be back in five minutes
2: conversation we've been having about uh, decentralized centralized etc to a, a theme we've been developing there's a structural issue and uh, a dynamic issue and I, I hand drew some pictures so um, disconnected to something like this where each of us is doing our own thing perhaps we're doing our own thing with uh, boundaries like gene you know this is your operating range and just so long as you don't cross the street Anything you do on the other side of the street is fine, so long as it's consistent with commander intent. All right, that's that's one. When you start having um, these higher degree interactions between the um, the various pieces, then there's a, a tendency to want to go with a, a centralized approach, which um, you know Gene's in charge, and you know everyone else has to um, await his instruction and then you know give constant updates. The, the problem with this approach is uh two one structural one dynamic the structural problem is it starts flowing too much information to you so um because of your inability to do all those computations one of two things happens either you start asking for more and more rarefied information which starts losing the idiosyncrasies of of the locality or you just get wicked slow in responding back all right So the the structure in that regard actually drives the dynamics of you getting very, very slow and uh, unresponsive. I think this is why that plant spazzed on six changes a day, because the operating tempo down here is actually very fast. The granularity of information, kind of like word size issue, because of local idiosyncrasies is very, very high. But... Whether it's these bands of transmission or or this processor, it can't operate keeping pace here. So this is the failure mode of David Silverman's uh, situation and team of teams at the start. The situation in the book is described as either something like this, where the uh, civilian analysts and the uh, Ranger Raiders and the SEAL teams are doing sort of their own thing, or it's this, which is everything has to be discussed with everyone all the time and the computational pace and the computational detail is just inappropriate. So then you get this approach, which is a much simpler structure. It's just connection between the pieces that have to directly interact and no more. And the value of this is that these direct connections actually carry much less information than this model. There's far less processing required at each of these um, nodes. So uh, you can have much richer conversation, in a sense, communication about far fewer things, and it's real time. And so this becomes the Toyota model, and also I think in team of teams, this is what they become, and this is why they go from that, you know, mission rate of one a day to eighty a week, or you know, whatever those crazy multipliers were. And and you know, it's really fascinating from my perspective because. um, There was no change in equipment, and there was no change in staffing, you know, plus or minus, right, from David's account. It was only a change in the speed, the accuracy of the communication and computation. So this ties back to the Toyota example of 60 changes a day. It didn't have to be a centralized um, set of decisions.
0: Gene here. Okay, I'd like to process what Steve was talking about because he just described what I think is one of the most important aspects of how structure affects the dynamics of how organizations actually work. So I'm starting to believe that you can predict whether an organization is a high performer or a low performer just by looking at the communication paths of an organization as well as their frequency and intensity. So in the not ideal case you probably have communications that are dominated by vast escalations up and down the hierarchy. Because to do any sort of integrated problem solving, it requires the efforts from different functional specialties. And therefore, you have to escalate issues to a level high enough where the two silos meet. So in the unicorn project, this is called the square, where in order to get anything meaningful done, you had to go up two, over two, and then down two in order for two engineers to actually work together. So this was discussed in detail in my interview with Mike Nygaard, SVP of Platform Engineering and Enterprise Architecture at Sabre. So on the other hand, in the ideal case, the majority of communications are happening within the team and between teams without any need to escalate at all because there are already sanctioned interfaces between those teams. And when escalations happen, they go up normally one level, not eight levels, showing that most problems can be solved locally. For example, when someone pulls the and on cord in a Toyota plant, most issues should be able to be solved locally by the team lead. And if it can't be solved within say 55 seconds, then it escalates to the group area lead. And one of the things that make this possible is that the work is organized by value stream so that every team knows where their inputs are coming from and where the outputs go. In other words, their internal customers are the next downstream step. This results in a very simple, what appears like a linear flow of work. And so simple really means more linear than not. Simple probably means more explicit and less tacit or nebulous. The result of this is that integrated problem solving can happen across a broad cross-section of functional specialties without escalating. These sanctioned interfaces already exist between those teams that allow them to work directly with each other. So in the devops community we might find that in product teams or in sre or ops engineering teams where they are matrixed into uh, the development or product teams all right so here's why i think this is so important and this is what steve drew on those pieces of paper when integrated problem solving requires going up and down the organization that work is slow and so much information is lost for example to escalate and get two managers to talk to each other, that could require a week to schedule. Uh, If you want to get two VPs to talk, uh, that might take multiple weeks. And as Admiral Richardson said, those VPs may get a very incomplete view of what is actually happening and may consequently make poor decisions. So those interactions are slow. uh, There's often not enough information. And whatever information is there, some of it is being lost. And as Steve mentioned, it's easy to overwhelm the people being escalated to slowing things down even further. On the other hand, when teammates talk to each other or where there are sanctioned ways for teams to work with each other with a shared goal, integrated problem solving is very fast. I can turn around and talk to the person next to me or I can call up someone on another team and say I'm missing something or something doesn't look right. We can adjust, we can renegotiate what that interface is. In other words, what is the information that must flow between two teams? This is a better and faster way than opening up a ticket or escalating an issue. It's faster. There's less information lost. In fact, I can imagine a whole bunch of scenarios where we're actually creating information, not losing information. And we're co-creating a solution that improves flow or the ability to achieve the goals of the system or the parts of the value stream that we occupy together. In fact, Steve has a great example of how Beth, the chief chemist in a pharmaceutical project, turned to her counterpart in biology and said, hey, don't just send us the data. Why don't you come and present your interpretation of the data to all of us in a meeting, and we'll do that every week. This resulted in an incredible wealth of information, knowledge that was created that helped everybody better achieve the goals of creating effective pharmaceuticals with more precision and less effort. So if it's not obvious, the language I'm using is inspired by the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Dr. Daniel Kahneman. This book describes so much of the work that he did in collaboration with Dr. Amos Tversky. I'm quoting the Wikipedia entry on this book. The main thesis is that of a dichotomy between two modes of thought. System 1 is instinctive and emotional, whereas System 2 is slower, more deliberative, and more logical. The book delineates rational and non-rational motivations and triggers associated with each thinking process and how they complement each other. In other words, System 1 is uh, where our biases live. We love using that part of the brain because it uses less energy, whereas it takes a lot of work to get into System 2. It uses more energy. Uh, It's difficult. But this is the cognitive problem-solving style that we need to activate for complex problems, and this is indeed what is activated when we do things like writing things down. So, in the domain of the topics discussed in this episode and the last one with Admiral Richardson, I'd submit that there are two domains of activities where we need to use the slow communication paths, where we require the leaders at the highest levels. Part of that is in planning, and to some extent, preparation or rehearsal. These are the activities where we need leaders to be very thoughtful about defining the goals, and then defining responsibilities and the structures to support them. So many leaders are probably familiar with roles and responsibilities, but there's a third R that we need to care about, the relationships between those components, in other words, the interfaces. We also need those leaders to decompose the big problem into small problems so they can be worked upon independently. This is where we absolutely need those up and down communications. But there are domains of activity that must operate using only the fast communication paths. This is absolutely where operations resides, or what Admiral Richardson sometimes calls performing, or operations and execution. And I'll make the claim that it's usually a mistake to operate or perform using the slow communication paths because it's rarely fast enough. And when leaders overreach down into operations, or when critical decisions always need to get approvals four levels up, things don't go so well but the role of the slow communications come back when we assess and improve. This is when we ask, are we achieving our goal? And if not, how do we change it so we can achieve our goal? This is when General Stanley McChrystal asks in Team of Teams, as good as we are winning tactically, are we achieving the strategic objectives? And his emphatic answer was absolutely not. These are what we do in agile retrospectives. This is what happens in football games during the huddles or during halftime. So in my previous interview with Dave Silverman and Jessica Reif, they talked extensively about how and why mid-level leaders need to act and think differently so that they can enable and foster these very different type of interactions across the entire organization. Personally, I am finding this mental model of slow and fast communication paths to be very helpful. And I'll just make a last side note here before I wrap up, is that Fast and slow is really collapsing a couple of attributes. In control theory, there are really four attributes, not just fast and slow. There's frequency of communications, Uh, there's speed of the response, so uh, are we acting on old information or are we acting on near real-time present conditions, Uh, granularity and detail of the communication, and accuracy or fidelity of the uh, communication. And so when you hear me say there are fast and slow paths, think of that as a proxy for all four. Frequency, speed, granularity, and accuracy. In operations, we tend to favor frequency and speed. Uh, For the deeply cognitive planning activities, we need granularity and accuracy. After all, we don't want to make decisions uh, on information that is actually false. Okay, let's go back to the interview where I asked Admiral Richardson whether the ideas that Steve proposed, those mental models, do they resonate with him? One to ten. To what extent does that resonate with you? One is like, oh, <laughs> like uh, politely acknowledged and we we'll move on. Ten is like, oh no, that is that you know exactly describes the dynamic that you painted, you know, especially as you uh, push the functional integration, you know, further. Yeah, no,
1: I think uh, a very high. You know, a nine ten, right? Because uh, the other thing that um, is interesting is that in you know, kind of an automobile manufacturing uh, environment uh, situation. You have the, uh, you, you kind of have full control over the tempo, right? So whether you're operating fast like Toyota, or you're operating slower like somebody else, you control all that, and you just you know put out fewer changes or fewer improvements per time. Uh, in the team of teams or in an operational environment, of course, you know there's only so much that you do control, right? And so out at that edge, kind of going back to our point uh, earlier, Gene, you either operate at that tempo or you don't, you know. And the absence of a decision is a decision. Right, uh, I mean, things are going to move on, and you've missed that opportunity, and so uh, the ability. And, and I think there's an IT uh, corollary now too, which is this processing at the edge. Right, so you know it's it's much more burdensome on the system to to uh, to try and uh, communicate a lot of raw data, just sensor data. But if you can make sense of it out at the edge and transmit. You know, the information, right? Then that's a, a much lower bandwidth type of a thing. So there are, I think that there's going to be some virtue to awareness, uh, some centralized awareness. You know, that's going to have to to uh, arise in some way. But in terms of response, you know, a, a lot of what uh, Steve said is exactly what we're after, right? They're teams moving out at the edge. And I leave it to you, Gene, to, uh, figure out how to get these pictures into the podcast <laughs> oh we will we'll figure it out <laughs>
2: so if, if I could just, uh, last interjection on this topic so um the uh the point about at what point does the center get involved um during the planning and during the configuration of the system but um so you can have the center involved when you're doing uh your contemplative work because uh, this thing is not yet moving. So the, the, the or the cognitive cycle times of this thing aren't an impediment. So when this thing um, can't be involved is when this piece is actually operating. Um, and once this thing is actually operating, you have to take that slow processor out because the underlying process is uh, moving quickly. So and then how do you reconcile the both of having to have system-level conceptualization? So that that's where flexibility comes in, which is we can um, do this quickly, operate quickly, stop, come back and do this quickly again, stop, come back and do this quickly again. And this is, this is where you get your uh, truly agile systems, which is this right. ability to reconfigure and flip-flop very quickly between the um, – how do we call it? This is the conceptual, um, and, and this is the operational. Yeah. And well, one last thing, I'm just gonna interrupt. So just in defense of my Toyota friends, by the way, they work in a very hostile environment. It just happens to have cycle times different than um team of teams. But um, yeah. you know, they have competitors that are constantly trying to eat their lunch, and uh, there's weather. Just this as is an aside, I think I told this to Gene, and then I will stop. The um, plant in which they were making these 60 line changes a day, that was one set of Kaizen. The other was narrowing the window. Now, remember, they're sourcing parts from all over Japan, and Japan's got crappy roads and weather. But they were trying to narrow the window in which trucks were arriving from um, a minute to 30 seconds because um, they were operating with so little inventory and such, and consequently such frequent delivery that if Gene arrived at um, 12.01 at the uh, unloading dock, but he was supposed to be there at 12.02, he'd be screwing up with my 12.01 delivery. And they were trying to narrow the variance down to a 30-second window from a one-minute window. Um, And that's, you know, the hostility of the environment there is weather and traffic and everything else. So
1: Yeah, the friction of friction, right? Yeah. Unavoidable friction of war and fog. So you got to accommodate for that. And I think what Steve was just describing is exactly what we were saying is that uh, there is a role for going back to the center, right? And so, you know, uh, you do these iterative operational steps. That happens a lot out at the edge. But then you have to say, okay, how did that step go, right? And are we making progress towards our overall strategic objective, Hmm. particularly against, as Steve pointed out, whether it's in uh, automobile. Uh, industry or or out in an operational environment hey you 've got a learning and adaptive competitor here as well, and so you know only so much of your initial assumptions are going to hold for only so long, and so you 're going to have to kind of come back
2: and uh, and rethink things Your point about integration coming down my impression the army went through that a number of years ago where the the point of integration was at the division level, and they moved it down to the brigade level and um I'm willing to bet that some of their um, high operating tempo units actually integrate, have degrees of integration at the battalion level in the light infantry. But uh, I I know a guy we can talk to who's kind of uh, like in the nitty gritty of that. He's had various commands. When you say integration, though, uh,
1: how do you mean that, right? Because... What we're talking about is integrating people into the organization. sounds like you're talking about product integration or something like
2: that. So um, what what I mean specifically in this is um, we we all have our functional specialties. And at what point in our stovepipe do we answer? How high in our stovepipe do we answer before there's a a cross-functional responsibility? Okay, got it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so happy to uh, articulate on that, Gene. Our our smallest unit of integration would be a ship's crew, mm. right? And uh, yeah, those come in various sizes depending upon the size of the ship. But uh, you know, you're always trained to kind of learn uh, the basics of you know the the job of the person next to you, right? Because in a casualty situation or something like that, you might have to pick up the responsibilities of that person, right? And so, and also up and down. And then there's just some functions that everybody has to know, right? Everybody has to know firefighting on a submarine because it's going to be an all-hands effort to get that thing out before all the oxygen goes away. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, –
0: <laughs> Not someone else's job. It's very, <laughs> not someone else's job. It gets very personal very fast. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so – I think by the book, right, there's kind of the spectrum on one side, you know, to adapt quickly, you want to, you know, push decision making to the edges, cross-functional teams. Then, you know, on the other extreme are these kind of functional organizations where you optimize maybe less for speed, but more for functional expertise. And one of the big surprises to me uh, researching right before this interview was to look at the six four-star positions in the U.S. Navy, and I was uh, genuinely surprised to see that one of them was for NR, the nuclear reactor core. So it seems like this is—we've been talking a lot about sort of pushing, sort of uh, expertise to the edges. It seems like the NR is one where is actually very much in the core. Can you just talk about why that is, and you know why NR is so important that it isn't just delegated away a little further down in the organization? <laughs> right. I, I'd like to just pause here and and just recognize
1: the operational genius of Admiral Rickover when he set this uh, organization up, right? And uh, the foresight that he had to establish sort of the culture and the business rules, so much of that continues today, you know, even decades later. And the things that they did very early on, you know, have proven to be very wise right I mean we're not cleaning up a lot of messes you know that were created by bad <laughs> guesses back then right so it's uh it's really was uh, you know, a, a remarkable beginning of you know a, a brand new technology right so um, you know in Steve's note he shared on innovation right I mean the speed at which that happened gene where I think it was 1938 where the idea that you could get, Energy from splitting an atom was theoretically discussed. Uh, it was 1942 or 43 when Enrico Fermi, underneath the uh, the stadium in Chicago, actually did it. It was literally, you know, like 10 years later we were launching a nuclear submarine whose entire power plant was based on that uh, that theoretical principle. Right, so. You know, turning that all, uh, you know, that theoretical idea into an engineering plant that uh, propelled a submarine or an aircraft carrier—just remarkable speed. And uh, you know, you can imagine the amount of innovation and uh, new ideas that had to be brought to bear. Very mindful that we're, we're just talking about a tremendous amount of energy here, and so a miscalculation could be, you know, just disastrous, right? So that's the reason that naval reactors exist as a separate organization. Characterized often as a highly centralized organization, but it actually uh, represents as an organism much more along the lines uh, that we've been describing. And so, you know, the center gets involved very much with the establishment of you know new policies the maintenance of of existing policies that have proven their value over time and so that type of commander's guidance if you will is maintained at the center but the execution is all done by field offices right and so they're existing in all of those places where we have nuclear power warships around the country the labs that support those you know it's it's actually very decentralized in execution and so there's a lot of, you know, conversation, command and feedback, right? When I was uh, the director, it was every week I was talking to the head representative in each of those field offices, and the, it was really just a listening exercise. How is it going out there? Do we need to change anything? If so, let's do it. But otherwise, the center's going to stay out of your business, and I just want to, you know, understand, it, is everything, are we achieving the aims that we set out to achieve? You know, it's actually within those bounds, the, you know, those guardrails, which uh, keep things safe. A tremendous amount
0: of creativity happens within the, uh, the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Program. And is there an easy answer of why the NR has a seat at that highest level table? Well, I think,
1: one, the consequences of a miscalculation or a mistake in that realm, uh, you know, just the, the responsibility that comes with that, attention at that level, The other thing about uh, naval reactors is that uh, they are sort of a cradle to grave organization, right? And so, you know, from the from the design of this technology, building the fuel, you know, the nuclear fuel, uh, bringing in the people and training the people, and uh, and then you know moving all of that through to putting the propulsion plants together, testing them, and then you know regulating that. There's regulatory authority involved. And then, you know, at the end of life, how do we then take the old fuel off or even dispose of the, I mean, it's a huge, huge, huge enterprise. And uh, so it's, it's worthy of that
0: level of seniority. Wonderful. And now that you explain it that way, it uh, suddenly becomes very clear <laughs> with the gravity of yeah. all that. Because interject
2: on that point, that kind of gets back to a, a discuss, um, an item we discussed earlier. At what point is value captured created and captured? And so everything that was just described as of uh, naval reactors is actually presenting to the rest of the world as this um, module, which is you turn to naval reactors for everything related to propulsion, including the, uh, the equipment, the fuel, the people, et cetera, et cetera. Internally, in order for that to work, there has to be a lot of integration of the parts, right? So th- that sort of argues
0: for that being encapsulated and some of those obligations span generations. <laughs> this is the, the the time scale of those commitments uh, is just breathtaking.
1: Yeah, I mean we are talking about a design that has to operate for <laughs> 50 years, you know. The entire complex blending of technology, the human element, yeah. everything, you know, that's that's a 50-year lifetime easy.
0: Gene here. I want to give some background behind the next question. I wanted to ask Admiral Richardson what should happen when complex systems go wrong. In his ideal, what really should happen? Here are some examples that I gave where there was something deeply unsatisfactory about the outcomes. In the Volkswagen emission scandal, one engineer was held responsible for the firmware changes to the engine management systems that allowed Volkswagen to cheat on U.S. federal emission standards. In the wake of the Equifax data breach, one of the largest data breaches of U.S. citizens, then former CEO Richard Smith stated that the breach was a result of human error and a technical failure, in this case a security engineer who missed something and a technical failure being a software license not being renewed. Uh, In the Deepwater Horizon disaster that led to the 11 deaths when a drilling rig exploded in the Gulf of Mexico, causing the nation's worst oil spill, uh, 134 million gallons, the person who faced federal prosecution were two supervisors for, quote, botching and disregarding two safety tests. In each of these cases, there's something deeply unsatisfactory about those that it sure seems like accountability and responsibility should go higher up the chain. So I asked Admiral Richardson, "What does he think about that?" Something unsatisfactory about each of those. <laughs> that seems like responsibility yeah. should go a little bit higher up the chain. So, as a leader, you know, how do you think we should really think about these events where you know there are systemic uh, what accidents happen in these kind of systemic large complex systems? Yeah,
1: well, I think. Uh- you know, when you're talking about accountability, um, first step, I, I think, is uh, to do a thorough investigation, right? And so it might be tempting to uh, take action. Uh, and thorough does not necessarily mean long, right? It doesn't have to last forever. But we, you know, I, I think that this, the decision maker who, who is going to sort of think about accountability needs to have all of the facts, and also, you know, a little bit of time, there's, I think there's always an emotional response to these things. And so a little bit of time will allow uh, emotions maybe to get to a, a more appropriate level. Um, and so that would be the first thing. Then um, a lot of times uh, what I would you know, try and communicate is that you know, particularly as you get higher and higher in the organization, uh, you know the leaders are accountable to for success, right? And so, I think a lot of times uh, we conflate uh, the word accountability with "hey, you're fired," right? And uh, sometimes uh, that's appropriate, but oftentimes it's really a matter of "hey, I think you just need to be trained a little bit better," or "or, or there's some other methods by which we can address." What happened, right? Now I would say uh, we, we talked a lot in the first interview about the role of values and and the, kind of the ethical approach. Uh, some of the examples you cited, I think, are more in that realm, right? And if uh, if the values have been clearly communicated, if this leader has uh, has uh, you know been, been assigned and there's an understanding that they get that right when when somebody acts contrary to the values of the organization i think that undermines the trust and confidence that is so important to this radical delegation you know that's that can be i think quickly resolved and and this person may not have a, a role on the team right uh, uh and um and then there are some things that are uh, just so egregious uh, particularly in the navy there's this value or this uh, uh sense of accountability of the commanding officer you know the 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 accountability of command at sea and that that can be stark you know and so um we you know, we put a lot of value in uh, in that and so uh you know oftentimes uh, some of the measures for accountability result in the relief of that officer. But you're you're also right that uh, if, uh, you know, somehow it's always sort of the more junior people that are dismissed and, and you know, you, you've got, I think that is really kind of the result of uh, either an incomplete investigation that really hasn't asked all the hard questions. Uh, you know, you got to ask why five times, you know, uh, before you uh, start to get insight. Uh, or it's uh, uh, a little bit of the maybe the fox guarding the hen house, right? That uh, the people that are doing the investigation and meeting out accountability, are all, they've just got too much interest in the outcome, right? So you need a bit of a detachment or separation that, that happens there.
0: And one of the things that I've heard you say is that the more senior um, you get, the more you have to, the more simply you need to speak. <laughs> is, is that? Yeah. Can you just uh, say a little bit about that and why you think that's? Well, true? this is just, I, I
1: guess, my experience. I, I think it goes back to the to the understanding that everybody's going to look at uh, what what they see through the lens that they've got. Perhaps there's that old saying: "Hey, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one." Right. And uh, so it, I think it's incumbent on more and more senior leaders to be more and more thoughtful about what they're saying, the guidance they're providing, so that they can uh, provide that in as sparse and terse a term, terms as possible that are uh, more and more immune to misinterpretation. Right, and so that's I think what what I'm uh, trying to capture there, and I'm a terrible example of that during this podcast because I've been so verbose and shooting all over. (laughs) But uh, but uh, you know I think it goes back to this commander's guidance, right? Hey, say what needs to be said, and and don't say anything else, right? Don't get extraneous because uh, all of that is going to be seen through a multiplicity of perspectives and uh, could be more and more subject to misinterpretation. So keep it as sparse and as terse
0: as possible. And maybe just to respond to that, uh, no, uh, never has it crossed my mind (laughs) over the last uh, two hours of like uh, you're talking too much. Everything uh, has been amazing. Admiral Richardson, thank you so much for all the time you spent with uh, me and Steve. I, I know that everything that you've shared will be so helpful for technology leaders. Can you tell us how uh, people can reach you and what uh, types of outreach uh, you would enjoy the most. In in act two of my professional life here, I'm
1: sort of on my own here. I do look forward to continuing this dialogue and whether I can be of any further help. Also, I'm learning. My my learning curve is absolutely vertical right now. So every time I talk to someone, I learn a ton. And so if you want to get a hold of me, please just uh, email Gene and his team and they'll reach out and touch me and we'll get right back to you.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview just as much as I did. Coming up next is my interview with Dr. Ron Westrom, who created the famous Westrom organizational typology model, which is featured so prominently in the state of DevOps research that I did with Dr. Nicole Forsgren and Jez Humble. So many of us in the DevOps community have read his work, but few of us have heard or seen him speak. Well, that's about to change. I'm so delighted that we'll be bringing you two interviews of his work, which is so relevant to everyone, not just in technology leadership, but all leadership. And don't forget to join me and all the amazing speakers at IT Revolution's upcoming DevOps Enterprise Summit Virtual Europe from May 18th to the 20th. See you then.